Hello and welcome. My name is Sophia Besch and you're listening to the CER podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm really very happy that for this last CER podcast of the year, I am joined by Charles Grant, director at the CER, Simon Tilford, who's our deputy director, and Ian Bond, director of foreign policy. In this episode, we want to take a look back at the year 2016. It has been an eventful year for Britain, for Europe and the Western world. The CER has published detailed analysis and commentary throughout the year. You can find our research on our website. And I don't want to spend too much time going into the weeds of policy changes today. Instead, I want to ask the three of you as experts in your fields to assess the broader trends and implications of the events of 2016. So let us start with the big questions. Charles, the British have voted to leave the European Union in June 2016. Um, few people, I think, understand how we got to this point and how negotiations are likely to unfold as well as you do. But taking a broader view at the end of this year, what does the result of the Brexit referendum mean for Britain and what does it mean for Europe? Well, some of the reasons that Britain is leaving the EU are part of a broader trend that is enveloping most of Europe and North America. And some of the reasons are Britain specific. The broader general reasons obviously are things like the uh, lack of growth of living standards of many ordinary working people, concerns about migration and identity, uh, hostility to elites, and the evolution of the media in the last few years, whereby social media have become very important and many people get their news and opinions from people they agree with rather than traditional, rather liberal national media. Those are those are broad trends, but within those broader trends, there are specific reasons why Britain decided to leave the EU. Uh, one being that the EU itself is perceived, in Britain at least, and more generally as being in a hell of a mess with lots of problems, refugee crisis, Eurozone crisis. Um, the British elites are probably even more untrusted or mistrusted than those in other countries because of the Iraq and Afghan wars and the financial crisis in 2008. Uh, there's a particularly Europhobic media, which is powerful and influential in Britain. And then the, the way the campaign was organised, uh, the Brexit campaign was led by charismatic figures like Boris Johnson, supported by the likes of, uh, of Michael Gove and Nigel Farage. While those leading the Remain campaign, people like Jeremy Corbyn were not convincing, nor were it was David Cameron or George Osborne. So I think for all sorts of reasons... Britain decided to leave the EU, similar, of course, to the reasons whereby Donald Trump was elected in America. But let's, let's remember, both those events were very narrow. Brexit could have gone the other way. Uh, Donald Trump lost the popular vote and Hillary Clinton could easily have won. So we shouldn't perhaps over-exaggerate over the importance of these two events. And 10 years from now, what will Brexit have meant for Europe? I would think... Ten years from now, Brexit will have meant that, uh, sadly, Europe is less likely to reform in the next few years because Brexit has scared the elites controlling Europe, most European countries, and it makes them worried that any kind of uh, popular referendum or treaty change could easily be uh, unpopular and thrown out. So it makes it harder to change the system in the short and medium term. In the longer term... I think the EU leaders will probably find a way of making their project more flexible, whereby some countries move forward towards a more integrated Eurozone uh, with a smaller number of members and a more stable and successful Eurozone, while a much wider group of countries, not probably including Britain, 
doesn't go for the Eurozone integration, but has a looser relationship based on the single market and some other policies. That, I think, is by, in 10 years from now, that will be one of the lessons of Brexit that will have been learnt, I hope. Mm. Ian, in 2016, we've seen Russian aggression in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, a bellicose China in the East China and South China Seas, the Middle Eastern turmoil and illiberal populists winning elections in the United States and Europe. What we tend to think of as the global order seems to have started to evolve in 2016. Does this year mark the beginning of a global disorder? It could easily be that sort of a turning point in history, yes. Uh, I know that 25 years ago we were talking about the end of history. That always seemed a bit of an exaggeration. History never really ends. And this is like... Uh, in Star Wars terms, this is the Empire Strikes Back, perhaps. But I think certainly there are things to be very, very worried about in what we have seen in the last year. Uh, I think Russia is feeling ever more confident about its ability to, to disrupt an order that hasn't suited it since the end of the Cold War. And what we're seeing now in the growing tension between the US and China is the mismanagement of a relationship which actually could have probably been managed more successfully and more peacefully to the mutual benefit of both countries. Simon, um, Donald Trump, Brexit, Marine Le Pen in France, populists are running on an anti-trade, anti-immigration, anti-elites platform. As an economist, do you think that we can trace their success back to a rebellion against globalization? There's no doubt that many of the things that people associate with globalization, so rising inequality, economic insecurity, damaging uncontrolled finance capitalism, are among the factors driving the success of populist movements. But many of these problems or trends are not really down to globalization. Many of them can be addressed in a globalized world. For example, governments are free to take steps to tackle high levels of inequality. They're free to improve housing. They're, they're free to bolster labor rights. They're not constrained by globalization from doing so. These are political choices. Other issues, however, that feed in to the whole populist issue, such as the ability of multinational firms to evade tax, does require global solutions. Governments do have to agree common approaches to that issue. As, uh, as they do uh, towards global finance. Addressing global finance requires global solutions and global rules and regulations. But we shouldn't over-egg the connection between economic problems and populism in any case. It is not primarily the young, that is, the principal victims of rising insecurity and inequality, who are falling under the spell of populists. It's mainly older voters And to many of them, the appeal of populism lies in nativism. It isn't really economic as such. It's about identity. Now, many Western countries, and certainly this one, the UK, urgently need to rethink the way they run their economies in order to boost economic growth and prevent an erosion of popular faith or confidence in market capitalism. But this in itself won't address the issue of populism. It's worth bearing in mind that some of the European countries that have done best over the last 10 years 
have the biggest or among the biggest problems with populism. So I'm thinking some of the Scandinavian countries and Austria. So even if we do um, address these problems, we won't avoid the situation altogether. And it's worth remembering that some of the countries that have had the worst time of it economically over the last 10 years in Europe are the countries that have managed to avoid much of the way, much of the sort of populist surge we've seen elsewhere. For example, Spain and arguably Italy, although things are starting to fray there a bit. And do you think that 2016 will trigger the kind of rethink, the kind of response from governments that you just mentioned? Not yet, no. I think if there is a, a silver lining in what's happened in 2016, I think it's shaken up the complacency of liberals. Liberals can no longer assume uh, that liberalism is going to flourish, that it can be taken for granted. Uh, that complacency is gone and they're now going to have to fight their corner. But this is going to be a long battle. They're a long way behind. Uh, the populists have much of have made much of the going. They're, they're, they're driving the narrative and they're, they're feeding on some, some pretty fertile ground. Mm. Okay, I want to ask all three of you three more general questions about 2016 um, before I bring it back to Charles with an outlook for the CER in 2017, maybe. Um, first of all, Ian, maybe starting with you, looking back, in your opinion, which story did the world not pay enough attention to in 2016? Well, paradoxically, it's the Middle East, really, because although the humanitarian crisis in Syria was very often on our TV screens, there has been, in my view, not enough discussion of the bigger political picture in the, the Middle East. It's not just Syria. It's also the continuing war in Yemen between Saudi-backed and Iranian-backed groups, It's the uh, breakdown of the state in Iraq, in Libya, uh, and the tensions in many other Arab countries. And that's something which is going to drive migration. It's probably also going to drive terrorism, not just in the Middle East, but also beyond. And that's something which the, the world in general is not committing enough resources to resolving. And I don't think we can afford to continue to be spectators uh, as we have been for much of the last year. Charles, do you agree? Or is there another development in 2016 that we should have paid more attention to? I would think North Korea, probably. Um, because North Korea has been a problem for such a long time with its nuclear program, and there have been so many efforts to try and persuade it to dismantle its nuclear program, we've kind of taken our eye off that ball. But in fact, they've now worked out how to put atomic weapons inside ballistic missiles. And if you're sitting in, in uh, parts of America, let alone parts of Japan or South Korea, that's very alarming indeed. And I think perhaps the biggest single strategic problem that President Trump will face in his early years is, what do you do about North Korea? The answer is, uh, if you try and take military action against the uh, nuclear weapons program in North Korea, it'll be pretty awful because they can obliterate much of Seoul and parts of South Korea very easily in, in a few minutes. The really the only possible way forward is to uh, try and get China to, to use its leverage on North Korea. How much leverage China has is a matter of debate, but to use its leverage to help persuade them to not move ahead with their nuclear weapons program. But So America needs China, but what do we see in the early weeks of President-elect Trump's uh, period leading up to taking on the presidency, he seems to be picking a fight with China on Taiwan, 
on the South China Sea, on trade arguments with China. So I think this is going to be a real issue. How does President Trump uh, manage to get China to help him against North Korea uh, when he's also picking fights with China at the same time? Simon, what did we miss? Ironically, I think it was the US election. I mean, there was wall-to-wall coverage of the US election, but very few people took the prospect of Trump actually winning it that seriously, which has left us uh, very ill-prepared uh, for the outcome of it. So I think it was that more than anything else. I mean, I think what's happened in the Middle East, as, as, as Ian has said, has been, has been very significant, and I agree with Charles that people should be paying more attention to, to North Korea. But I think the interesting thing about the US is that it's all we talked about for months. But no one really thought it was going to happen, and none of us really prepared for this. Interesting. Um, this might be a challenge, but I'm really interested in your answers. What event or development in international affairs, ideally, gave you hope, gave you cause for optimism in 2016, Charles? Uh, there was very little cause for optimism in 2016, as far as I can see. Some stories were not so bad as many others. Uh, the Cyprus peace talks moved forward slowly, hopefully positively. There was, in the end, a peace deal in Colombia to end the civil war there. Um, Burma remained on the right path towards a fairly democratic system of government. And even in, uh, in some African countries, uh, certainly Ghana and possibly Gambia, too early to tell, elections threw out, threw out one lot of people and brought in another lot of people. Um, Aust- Austria elected a Green president as opposed to a far-right president. There were some small glimmers of hope. The, perhaps the most important one, really, is, as Simon already said, is if the, the silver lining is that liberals understood that the world doesn't owe them a living and it is no longer the case that human history is marching inexorably towards a kind of democratic, liberal, multilateral, rules-based global order and that those who need, who want that, Kind of world. We're going to have to fight very hard for it. That's in a way maybe a silver lining from the North News 2016. We have to fight for what we want now. I'll wait that call then. Ian? I'd agree with Charles's point, and particularly perhaps on, on Cyprus and on Colombia. Uh, the, the fact that there has been some progress towards settlement of very long-standing conflicts does give you some reason for optimism, at least there. But it's much harder to find reasons for optimism either in, uh, in North America or in, uh, in Western Europe at the moment. Mm. Simon? I think the main reason for optimism is that the young, despite having borne the brunt of the economic problems that we have, have remained remarkably cosmopolitan in outlook. They don't blame their problems on globalisation, on immigrants. Uh, it's, it's the older generation doing that. And one reason why they don't is that, on average, they're much better educated than their parents and grandparents. But there also seems to be a cultural change underway, certainly in much of Europe, but also among the young in the US. They are becoming more open, less less suspicion of foreigners. So if we can overcome the kind of demographic hump or bump, if you like, of, of, the, uh, of the, the baby boom generation who are driving much of the support there for populism, then the future might look rather less scary. Um, but that is a, a sort of a, a medium to long term Thing, but I think it's something we need to hold on to. The future, the young, do not share much of this rebellion against openness and globalisation and do not embrace nativism in the way many older voters Although, do. sadly, in France, Marine Le Pen seems to win more support from youngsters than even older people, which is rather different to populism in Britain and North America, where it may be there. Yeah, right. 
<laughs> I'm trying to be optimistic. The optimistic yeah. point here. <laughs> trampled on my point. Yes. <laughs> okay, maybe this was a bit of an artificial question then. Uh, looking ahead, in your opinion, what will be the most important development to follow in 2017, Ian? The relationship between the US and China. Going back to what Charles said about uh, North Korea, China is crucial to to so many issues in the Asia-Pacific region, and Trump is off to a very bad start with the Chinese. And I think if that relationship deteriorates further, then the chances of getting China to behave, as was said many years ago, a responsible stakeholder in international relations those chances will be much, much smaller. And that's very dangerous, not just for Asia, but for the rest of the world too. Mm. Charles, 2017, what should we look out for? I think, obviously, coming back to Europe, um, I'm not too worried about the German elections. It's quite hard to conceive how they could lead to any outcome other than a government, a new coalition led by Angela Merkel. So Germany will provide stability. But the worry, of course, is the French elections in Italy. The French elections, my view for what it's worth is it's very difficult for Marine Le Pen to win the presidency. Uh, if Fillon wins, representing the moderate right, if a rather Russia-friendly version of the moderate right, uh, then I think that's good for the stability of the EU, because the EU needs a France that is active, vigorous, economically strong and influential. And it hasn't had that France for the last few years, which has been one of the reasons the EU's been in a mess. So... I think a good French election result, meaning not Marine Le Pen, will help to stabilise Europe. Italy is a very big worry. We don't know whether there'll be elections next year in Italy. Probably there will be in 2017. Um, we shouldn't read the recent referendum as uh, necessarily a triumph of populists against liberal elites, because many moderate, sensible, intelligent centre-left and liberal people like Mario Monti uh, voted, uh, to, to, voted down the constitutional change that Mr Renzi put forward. Nevertheless, as Simon already indicated, in Italy, there is a lot of support for leaving the euro on the right of the political spectrum and in the opposition, amongst the opposition parties and the populists. And it is possible that in the long run, if Italy doesn't find a way of improving its economic performance and managing some structural reforms, and at the same time, if the eurozone isn't reformed in a way that allows the Italian economy to grow through a growth of demand, then Italy could be performing so badly economically and create so much annoyance amongst voters that they would actually have some sort of referendum on Eurozone membership. So I think Italy, in the long run, is something to watch out for in 2017 as a potential weak link in the kind of chain of European integration. Mm. Simon, what will you be following in 2017? I agree with all of those things. I think at the global level, it's, it's how the relationship between the US and China evolves within Europe. Clearly, uh, what happens politically in Italy uh, is going to be something we all need to watch closely. I don't think, though, that that is as big a threat as, uh, as the possibility of a Le Pen victory in France. And obviously that looks unlikely at the moment, but then so did Trump and, and, and so did Brexit. A Le Pen victory in France would have posed an existential challenge to both the Eurozone and to the EU. One final thing, though, I think uh, we need to watch out carefully for is what Russia does over the next six to nine months. Whether it uses uh, Trump's victory and this sort of uncertainty that that is ushered in to test the EU on matters of security, could do that in all manner of ways, uh, but this would be an ideal opportunity for it to do so, and how the EU responds to that will obviously be will be crucial. Mm. Um, finally, Charles, as director of the Centre for European Reform, 
What does all this mean for the CEO? And where does the think tank, where do we stand after the events of 2016 and how will we go forward in 2017? Well, we'll continue to do what we've been doing for the last 19 years, which is to produce sober, serious and rigorous analysis on two sets of issues. One issue is the future of Europe itself. And a lot of the work we have done and will do is nothing to do with Britain and its complex relationship with Europe. It's on issues like the future of the Eurozone, on the EU's trade relations with the rest of the world, on migration, on police and judicial cooperation, on what's happening in EU-China, EU-Russia relations. So we'll do lots that's nothing to do with Britain, but clearly quite a big chunk of our work will be about Brexit. And when it comes to that, our line is to come up with solutions and policies and ideas that will reduce the damage. We do think Brexit will be damaging to the British economy, certainly, and to the continental economies to some degree. But if we go for economically optimal solutions that maximise the trade and investment flows between Britain and its, part and its former partners, that is in everybody's interest. So we will continue to, to bang the drum for relatively close relations, for a soft Brexit uh, I think that it's unrealistic to suppose that um, Britain can uh, not leave the EU. I don't see a scenario in which we don't leave the EU. But I do think once we're outside, once we experience the chill winds of solitude, then people in Britain will start to think, hang on, shouldn't we get closer again? And then even if we don't actually rejoin, we may find on all sorts of ways that by we work together on police cooperation or composition policy or foreign policy, whatever. So I think once we get out, we can get closer. But I think sadly, we have to get out before we get closer. We will definitely continue the CEA podcasts in 2017. These podcasts are also a product of 2016. So that is at least one reason to be cheerful. Um, I hope that you have enjoyed this end of the year episode. If you did, let us know on Twitter with the hashtag CEA podcast. Leave a comment and a rating and subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. Thanks for being here, Charles, Simon and Ian. Happy holidays, Merry Christmas, and see you again in 2017. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. You can find more on our website, cer.org.uk, or follow us on Twitter at cer underscore London. Mm -hmm.